The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Where is the borderline between people who know something about the Civil War and people who know a lot about it? The answer, it turns out, is the Bristow Station Campaign of 1863. Most of us are on the near side of that line. Sure, maybe we've heard of Bristow Station, but in the next hour, we're going to cross that border and join the few who know what actually happened there. From Bill Backus, co-author with Robert Orison of A Want of Vigilance, the Bristow Station Campaign, October 9 to 19, 1863. That's tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the... Uh, the hospital annex of Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters, located uh, in my home office at uh, Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina. So not representing, as always, East Carolina University, even though I spend my days there and they pay me. Uh, Not actually in the hospital, please don't be concerned, but uh, I've got a bit of a cold. The voice is much lower than usual. It's been a busy set of days around here, 
dealing with minor health uh, impediments, uh, back spasms a few weeks ago. Uh, my lovely bride is suffering from a nerve uh, pinch of some sort in her leg. Uh, so we're both turning into a couple of invalids uh, staggering about the place. Yet during the day, we continue to educate the youth of America and our respected institutions uh, as if nothing were wrong. We're, we're hanging in there. And we're hanging in there with excitement as all uh, North Carolina is getting increasingly excited about the big sports event two weeks from now. Uh, I'm, I'm sure many people around the world, of course, uh, get excited every year in February for the, uh, the North Carolina Adult Soccer League Men's Over 50 Tournament, which is coming up in Wilmington uh, just two week weekends from now. And the Greenville Stars, our city team, <coughs> that's us, the over 50 guys will be playing, so I've got to get over this cold, <clears throat> and I'll try not to cough too much tonight uh, in time to take the pitch with my uh, elderly comrades. Uh, so I'll keep you posted on that. It, it, I assume ESPN will have stuff about that anyway, so we'll, we'll all know about that. Meanwhile, back here in Greenville, uh, last night was a uh, very interesting program on campus on a topic relevant to our show, uh, to all of our shows. The subject was the practice of uh, naming things or erecting historical memorials or monuments. And we had uh, Derek Alderman, a geographer from the University of Tennessee, formerly at ECU, who's written extensively about naming practices. And Al Brophy from the UNC uh, School of Law in Chapel Hill. Uh, Al, it turned out, uh, we discovered talking to each other, he and I overlapped at Harvard for a year in the 90s. He was in the AMCIV program, and I was just finishing the history program. And I was excited about that because it gives me a chance to remind everyone tonight that I went to Harvard. Uh, I haven't had a chance to do that in the last couple shows, uh, but there it is. It was good actually talking to him. We know a number of people in common. And more importantly, uh, Al and Derek gave a really interesting joint uh, presentation, a sort of dialogue about issues like Confederate monuments, which, on which we've seen a, just a remarkable sea change in the last uh, 12 months since the, uh, the, the terrible events in Charleston in 2015. The idea that... Uh, the, the memorialization that has taken place in the past is a sacred and only possible memorialization of the Civil War years is finally starting to give way. Uh, I was a moderator for the panel and I raised the question uh, that there's a legitimate concern how far should this go? When does it stop? And uh, we discussed that for a while. But while I think that is a legitimate concern, that's not an excuse for taking no action at all. And certainly there are, uh, in my view, I'll put my cards on the table, uh, Confederate monuments are completely appropriate and acceptable in historical settings, on battlefields and uh, in museums. Where they are troubling is in sites of theoretically uh, of public power, the county courthouse, for example, in Greenville, uh, in Pitt County here, does not have a monument to... Uh, people who fought for the country, just for those who fought against it, uh, and it's labeled our Confederate dead. They're not my Confederate dead, and they're not the Confederate dead of the African-American population in Pitt County, uh, and they're not 
uh, they're they're a small they represent a small minority of longtime residents, and for that to be in a museum would be fine, or in the town common would be fine, but in front of the courthouse, where I need to go to get the same parking ticket paid as uh, uh, some some old Greenville aristocrat goes, uh, I'm, I'm not comfortable with that. I'm happy to say there was a, uh, there's an excellent question that was posed to the panel last night uh, by uh, a Civil War talk radio listener, uh, Charles Davis. He and I got to have a nice conversation beforehand, and he uh, asked the panel, uh, to the distress of some in the audience, why so many things are named in this country after traitors to the United States. Uh, citing Fort Bragg, Fort Hood, Fort A.P. Hill. I'm not getting into that with uh, with you this evening, but I think it was uh, uh, an interesting counterpoint to some of the other uh, audience questions that we got. Well, uh, you can support Civil War Talk Radio by attending events like that or sending me questions uh, by email to uh, the address that the announcer gives every week on the show. Uh, or by sending uh, raw cash through the PayPal button on the impedimentsofwar.org website. Always welcome. Uh, it's tax time. You cannot deduct any donation on your taxes. I'm not a 501c3. I'm not accountable to the government or to you or to anyone for what I do with the money. I could use it. I'm looking around the room now. I could use it to buy cat toys for Candy the Cat in great quantity. Uh, I could do anything I want. It does mean I declare it on my taxes as uh, uh, income, essentially, for the program. So uh, we're not cheating the government, but but don't don't take it off yours. Speaking of impediments of war, that's where you'll find out that next week on the show we will have Christopher Dickey, author of *Our Man in Charleston*, Britain's secret agent in the Civil War South, really entertaining book. On February 10th, a week after that, Mark McLaughlin, uh, designer of the board game Rebel Raiders on the High Seas, published by GMT Games, uh, will be joining us. Mark has also published other uh, games on Civil War battles or or campaigns, and we'll talk about representing the war in a different sort of publication format. And on February 17th, David T. Dixon, author of The Lost Gettysburg Address. You think you know about the Gettysburg Address, and you do. Uh, You know about the other Gettysburg Address, the one by Edward Everett. We're going to find out about the lost one, the third one, from David T. Dixon on February 17th. And finally, don't forget, as always, on May 21 through 29, Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours offers This Hallowed Ground, uh, a tour of Civil War sites. It is always uh, a delightful uh, and inspiring and educational and sobering week uh, to, to tour these sites. I learn lots of things new every year, uh, even though I've seen many of the sites many times. And if you've never seen them or only seen them a few times, this is a great opportunity. It's a comfortable and pleasant bus trip with uh, usually a lot of smart, interesting people and me. Uh, so I highly urge you to uh, consider that as a, an activity we can undertake together in May. Well, to, in fact, I'm, I'm looking this year at restructuring the tour to see if we can squeeze in a, uh, 
any sites related to the topic of tonight's show, uh, which we have not visited in the past because, well, as I said in the introduction, it's not something everybody knows about. The topic is the Bristow Station Campaign of October 1863, and it's the subject of the book A Want of Vigilance, uh, written by Bill Backus and Robert Orison, and Mr. Backus is our guest on the show tonight. Bill, are you there? I am. Thank you for, uh, for having me on your show. Well, welcome. Delighted to have you here. Um, the, uh, the start with a question I often ask of folks I haven't had the chance to uh, meet in person. Uh, how did you come by an interest uh, first generally in the Civil War and then we'll move to this, this particular uh, somewhat obscure topic? Uh, well, like uh, probably many of your listeners, uh, the Civil War has always been an interest of mine since I was a small child. So, um, on various summer vacations, uh, I shanghaied my parents and my uh, younger sibling to visit some of these Civil War battlefields. Um, when I started uh, maturing and deciding what I wanted to do, I went to college uh, at the University of Mary Washington. I got a BA in historic preservation, and I tried to figure out how to put that to use with hopefully a focus on the Civil War. And it's been my very uh, fortune to have the being the uh, the ability to work for um, Bristow Station Battlefield Heritage Park for the past six years. And the University of Mary Washington is is right there on the Fredericksburg battlefield, is it not? Yes, right on the battlefield. So, so you saw that every day from class. That that would be yeah. quite an opportunity. So now you work for uh, for the county, is it? Uh, yes. Um, so Bristow Station is a 140-acre uh, histor- uh, historic park that is owned and managed by Prince William County government. Well, one question I want to ask later on tonight is about uh, the preservation story there, but. Uh, Let's look at uh, the question of, of Bristow Station itself. Um, it is—it's one of those things that I—I'd you know, certainly heard about it. Uh, my, my friend and colleague Michael Palmer wrote *Lee Moves North*, uh, where he looks at uh, the invasions of '62 and '63, and then also the, the Bristow Station campaign, which is generally neglected. But other than than Palmer's work. I had not read much about it. Um, was it just a matter of, of, of proximity? You were in the area, so that, that became one that, that drew your particular attention? Yes. Um, it's uh, a battlefield in my backyard, but also, as you mentioned, there's not a lot written on birthday Station. So just to, uh, to figure out what happened there, um, just had to do a little bit more research. And the more research I was able to do... Uh, more interesting stories were coming to the surface all the all the time. Now, the as you say in the book, the the, the general perception uh, for those with a surface level uh, knowledge of the campaigns in the East is uh, Lee goes up to Gettysburg. Everybody knows what happens there. Uh, defeated, retreats back into Virginia, and then uh, Meade's army and Lee's army sort of glare at each other. Uh, they both detach a chunk of the army to go west and fight at Chickamauga, and nothing else happens until Grant comes over and you have the Wilderness Campaign in 1864. 
what that overlooks, of course, is what happens here. What um, is that? Re- maybe is that unfair though? Bristol Station is not a major battle. Um, is it maybe fair that we just ignore that anything happened here? Well, it's not a major battle. Um, the casualties that are sustained uh, throughout the campaign uh, cannot compare to Antietam or Gettysburg or Chickamauga. Um, but you have to put Bristol Station in the context of the American Civil War. Yes, mm-hmm. you have Gettysburg and Vicksburg as Union victories, but as the draft riots throughout the North in July of 1863 show, uh, the Union uh, support for the Union war effort can be pretty fickle. And so you have a Confederate change of fortune out West with the victory at Chickamauga, and you have now Lee in early October 1863 trying to uh, put a little bit of steam inside the Confederate war effort in Virginia. Um, it's not able to bear any fruit, uh, but because it doesn't provide a, a shift in the conduct of the war, uh, I think doesn't preclude it from being studied. Um, I so don't like you're, you're suggesting there's the potential. Yes. So this, this battle had a potential of changing um, the popular mood in both the Confederacy and in the Union. Um, it doesn't because it's a Union victory. Um, so. But but if had it gone the other way, then uh, on top of Chickamauga in September, then you have uh, if Lee had inflicted a, a serious defeat on Meade in October, uh, there are elections. It's not a, a congressional election year uh, or presidential year. Sixty three isn't, but there are always uh, local elections. There are some state elections throughout the North. So, mm-hmm. and in the two th- big states that have elections in the fall of eighteen sixty three are Ohio and New York, the two largest states in the North. And in the late summer of 1863, it's looking like the Democratic conservative element is gaining momentum with the electric. So with the Confederate victory at Chickamauga and the potential Confederate victory at Bristow, it's not unreasonable to see conservative Democrats being elected into Ohio and New York and putting some pressure on the Lincoln administration to stop uh, the Union war effort down south. So, as often as the case, you know, we pay attention to th- the moments where things happen and forget the element of contingency that didn't have to happen this way. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, this is certainly one of those moments. Well, we're going to take a short break now. We're going to come back and talk more about the campaign and battle of Bristow Station, uh, which, in, in, which is the subject of the book, A Want of Vigilance, the Bristow Station Campaign. October 9 to 19, 1863. Uh, Our guest tonight is co-author Bill Backus. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. 
Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Bill Backus, co-author, along with Robert Orison, of A Want of Vigilance, the Bristow Station Campaign, October 9 to 19, 1863. I should have told uh, all of you listening uh, during the break to run out and get your maps of central Virginia uh, so that you could follow along more closely. Uh, I know you, you have them in one book or another. Uh, just to give a general sense of what we're talking about, if you picture a triangle with Manassas in the upper right corner, uh, go due south, 25 miles down or so to Fredericksburg, uh, that's the eastern boundary of the campaign, go westward uh, up the Rappahannock River, uh, about the same distance, it splits, uh, the Rapidan River joins it, uh, go about 25 miles toward Culpeper Courthouse, and from Culpeper uh, up to uh, Manassas is a railroad which goes through Brandy Station, Warrenton Station, Catlett Station, and Bristow Station before it gets to Manassas Junction. That's the railroad around which the campaign centers. So it gives us a little bit of an idea of where we're talking about in Virginia. Um, Bill, where are the armies when they face each other in, in at the beginning of this campaign in October of 1863? And what, who initiates the campaign and what's, what's the goal? Well, uh, both armies are in Central Virginia. Uh, Lee's Army of Northern Virginia is centered around uh, Orange Courthouse, and the Federal Army of the Potomac is centered around Culpeper, so um, a few miles from one another. Uh, in early or late September 1863, early October, uh, with the Confederate victory at Chickamauga, uh, it is decided in Washington to send uh, the Tennessee Army 
reinforcements from Virginia. So two Union Corps from the Army of the Potomac are detached and sent uh, to Chattanooga. When Lee realizes that he's now facing a reduced federal army, he decides to, in effect, try to repeat what happened at Second Manassas to try and outflank the, the federal forces and try and engage them in a battle in Northern Virginia. Though it's going to be uh, on a very smaller scale than what happened in, in the summer of 1862. So Lee tries to um, uh, hold the Army of Potomac's view in orange with part of his army, uh, a corps under Richard Ewell, while the other part of his army under A.P. Hill conducts a small flank march. Uh, pretty quickly, though, uh, the commander of the Army of the Potomac, George Meade, realizes what's up, and he decides, instead of risking a battle in central Virginia, what he's going to do is take a more conservative approach, fall back along the Orange and Alexandria Railroad, his main supply route, and retreat towards Centerville, where there's large uh, and fortifications that are constructed there, and let Lee assault him. So he's, he's going back along this railroad, which runs uh, from southwest to northeast, uh, from Culpeper back toward Randy Station, goes all, all the way back to Manassas and then Centerville. If he goes that far back, he'll be in a safe spot uh, behind Bull Run, just as in, in previous years. But, uh, but Lee's trying to get there, try, trying to outflank him before he can do that. Yeah. So, uh, so, so Lee knows what, that what if Lee can get to Centerville before he can, uh, the campaign is going to end in a failure. But conversely, if Lee can get part of his army behind Meade's army, get onto the railroad, the way Stonewall Jackson did, as, as you point out, the second Manassas campaign in 1862, uh, if he can get there first, then Meade will have to attack him, and Meade will be cut off. So, so there's a possibility of a major victory here. Mm-hmm. There is. What? Um, but Meade falls back. He goes back behind the Rappahannock River. Uh, that we wouldn't be having this conversation if that were the end of it. If Lee just said, "Well, that didn't work," and, and went back to Culpeper, went into winter quarters. Uh, so, what does Lee try next? What Lee tries next? Mm-hmm. Um. Well, Lee ultimately wants to. Uh, shift the war from central Virginia, uh, at least to the northern Virginia area, uh, possibly shift the war to the Shenandoah Valley with um, the possibility of moving to Maryland. Uh, but when the Union Army is retreating northwards towards Centerville, uh, Meade's army decides to burn the vital railroad bridges, uh, one of which is at Rappahannock Station, uh, the bridge crossing the Rappahannock River. And so when the Federal Army burns that bridge, it causes a logistical bottleneck with Lee's Army. So once Lee's Army gets to the Rappahannock Station area, they can no longer use the Orange and Alexandria Railroad to supply their, their Army. Afterwards, everything's going to have to be supplied by wagon. Uh, it compounds the issue that Prince William County, uh, Fauquier County, the other counties in Northern Virginia, have seen war for two, three years. Most of the farms are uh, desolated, abandoned, and so the Confederates can't live off the country like they can do in Central Virginia. So everything that the Confederate Army needs to, to operate, they need to bring up 
uh, via wagons. And so that burning of the Rappahannock uh, Bridge really prevents Lee from doing anything but trying to entangle a part of the Federal Army in a battle and maybe cause a, a situation that can be turned into a major uh, Confederate victory. So before that, Lee had the idea he, he would simply follow along the same rail line the Union is using to retreat. He could follow up, and that would be his supply line. But now the bridge is gone, so that's not going to work. So uh, I'm looking at the map on, on page two, and this book, as, this book I should add, uh, is published uh, as part of the Emerging Civil War series published by Savas Beatty, and it has maps by Hal Jesperson, who does maps for many of this series, and they are uh, uniformly excellent. Uh, they, they help understand what's going on in this campaign. So now you've got Meade's army north of the Rappahannock safe. Um, if I recall, uh, at some point Meade decides, uh, well, okay, Lee tried his outflanking move, didn't work. Maybe I'll try and, and uh, give battle. Meade is under pressure to fight, isn't he? He is under pressure to fight, so he does try to um, send his army back down south to uh, outflank uh, Lee. Uh, but once he decides to do that, uh, he starts to get more or less cold feet, uh, because as most of your listeners will know, he takes a lot of pressure after Gettysburg from the Lincoln administration for not uh, pursuing Lee's army more aggressively after the Battle of Gettysburg. And so... Um, there's a feeling in Lee's headquarters, Meade's headquarters, excuse me, that if he doesn't perform well, if he causes a, a defeat, his job's on the line, he's going to be removed from uh, command of the Army of the Potomac. So he's going to take a very conservative approach to this campaign, and he decides to fall back on his initial plan to fall back on the Centerville and let Lee attack him. So that puts the ball back in Lee's court, uh... Now Lee again has the option to say, forget it, go into winter quarters. Uh, that doesn't sound like Lee. What, what does he try? Uh, Lee more or less c- continues on with the, uh, with the campaign. Uh, so he splits his army into uh, three sections so along the core line. So Yule will be more or less close to the Orange and Alexandria Railroad. Hill's Corps is going to be a little bit further out west, um, trying to replicate... Uh, Stonewall Jackson's more famous flank march of 1862. And Stewart's Cavalry Corps is going to try and be in the middle of this and also trying to be a thorn in Meade's side and his retreat. Excuse me. Uh, to help his uh, pace quicken up to Centerville, um, after he makes the decision to fall back up north, uh, Meade decides to split his army into different subsections. And so one section will be taking the direct route along the railroad up to Centerville, while another section is going to take a more uh, northwesterly section. And so they're going to be going through some back roads, different back towns, um, before going to Centerville. And this sets up the stage uh, for Jeb Stewart's Cavalry uh, Corps to be more or less stuck between two federal forces. Um, after, rec- uh, uh, after making a survey along the uh, railroad, uh, Stewart's falling back towards uh, Lee's headquarters now in Warrington, Virginia, um, because there's federal forces on the railroad. 
when he's coming down to a small little town called Auburn, he realizes that there's two federal corps now camped in that town. So he is uh, blocked from the main Confederate army. And so instead of trying to fight his way out, he instead decides to bed his men down for the night, uh, trying not to make as much noise as possible, and potentially let the, the Federals continue their march during the night. And then the next day, on October 14th, if the Federals are still there, try to make their uh, way out. Uh, during the night, too, Stewart sends the courier to Lee's headquarters, uh, praising him of the situation. So Lee knows that now Stewart, with the bulk of his cavalry, is behind enemy lines. And so he's going to dispatch some of his uh, forces uh, from Warrington to try and open up the line with Stewart. So, so Stewart's men are, are literally hiding. They've, they, they've carried out their reconnaissance. They discover there's one Union Corps further north of them. There's one a little bit southwest of them, both marching towards Centerville, and they're in between. And uh, as you describe it, they, they find, I guess it's a valley, a ravine. Do we know exactly where it was that they hid for the night? We don't know. Um, there's about two different locations that um, we think uh, Stuart uh, decides to bed down for the night, but we're not entirely sure. So but it's somewhere, somewhere around the town of Auburn. So somewhere out there, his men are just being very quiet and waiting for dawn and uh, relief from Lee's army. Uh, how, how, does he, how does Stuart get out of that fix? Uh, well, he, while he's bedding down, uh, one of the, the, corps, the federal corps that's at Auburn uh, continues to march up north. And so on October 14th, when the day opens, he's facing one corps, which is the second corps under G.K. Warren, um, who are in a small little hilltop. Uh, preparing their morning breakfast, and uh, Stuart decides it's his time to try and break out, and so he orders his few artillery pieces with him to deploy and fire on to these federal soldiers uh, making their morning coffee, uh, which gives that hill its now present name of Coffee Hill, um, which completely surprises uh, the federal forces at Auburn. They're not expecting uh, Confederates to come uh, in effect from their rear, and so they start to deploy to, to fight uh, Stuart. While they're fighting Stuart, um, elements of Lee's armies coming from Warrington, and so now Warren's Corps has a two-front battle from their front and their rear. Uh, Stuart tries a couple of assaults that end in failure, uh, but this, those assaults uh, constrict the, the federal line which allows a couple of roads leading out of Auburn to open up. And so he's going to take that chance to, to flee. Um, so now with the Confederate cavalry gone, the, the battle really turns into just a one-on-front battle. And the federal commander, G.K. Warren, decides uh, it's not smart to stay in, Warren to, or excuse me, stay in Auburn. So he starts to disengage from the Confederates and start falling back towards the Orange and Alexandria Railroad, which is the most direct route to the main uh, federal army now at Manassas Centerville. So Warren is going to get the heck out of there. Um, as you note, uh, Warren is uh, relatively new in command of Second Corps, replacing Hancock, uh, wounded at Gettysburg. 
both armies have a lot of uh, commanders who are not uh, not the traditional varsity. We'll say uh, mm-hmm. uh, in the in the Union side, you've got uh, Warren. You've got uh, well, who else do you have? Uh, who, who's commanding which corps? Uh, you have um, you have some of the the. Um, you have some new corps commanders. So after Gettysburg, the first the first corps commander, John Reynolds, Reynolds is killed, and so he has been replaced with a person that almost no one will know, John Newton. Uh, mm-hmm. He'll stay in corps command bef- until the army gets reorganized. Uh, the second corps has a new uh, acting commander with Warren. Uh, the third corps. Uh, has William French, which most old Third Corps members could care less about. Um, they're longing for the days of Hooker and Sykes. Uh, the Fifth Corps is still under George Sykes. Uh, the Sixth Corps is still under John Sedgwick. Uh, but like Gettysburg, the Sixth Corps will not take an active part in this campaign. Um, and the Cavalry Corps is still under uh, Alfred Pleasanton. So there is a lot of uh, shuffling of chairs in the command of the Army of Northern, uh, the Army of the Potomac. So Warren's Corps is now marching north. They've had this skirmish, unexpected skirmish with Stuart's cavalry. They're on their way back toward the uh, the Orange and Alexandria Railroad, and they will, if if they keep on their course, they'll meet it right at about the uh, the location of Bristow Station. Uh, mm-hmm. But there's a Confederate force headed there too. Who's that? Uh, the Confederate force is A.P. Hill's Corps. So while portions of the Confederate Army uh, that are encamped in Warrington are sent to Auburn on the morning of October 14th, uh, other Confederate forces are sent up uh, the Warrington Turnpike uh, towards the Old Manassas Battlefield. Uh, but once about a mile out of town, they take a sharp right turn, and they're going to take the direct route to Bristow Station. So more or less, you now have a race the Bristow Station between two corps of uh, the opposing armies. Uh, Warren's Second Corps marching up the Orange and Alexandria Railroad, and A.P. Hill's Confederate Corps taking a small country lane towards uh, Bristow Station too. Um, initially, though, there's actually another Federal Corps encamped at Bristow. Uh, it's the uh, the Fifth Corps uh, under George Sykes. He has orders by George Meade to remain in the Bristow Station area until he sees uh, Warren's guys coming up from the south. Once he sees the Second Corps, that's his time to start his march back up to Centerville. Uh, Sykes, though, is very skittish. He does not like the position that he's in. Um, he sends a couple couriers to, to Warren, asking of his progress, uh, asking him if he can speed up uh, the, his rate of march, uh, then he starts to lecture him, saying that uh, some of the reports that are coming to him are true. If Lee's army is concentrated in the area, um, two federal corps really isn't a big difference if there's just one federal corps there. Um, so he is very skittish, wants to go. When he starts to see the the lead elements, uh, or what he thinks the lead elements of the second corps approach, he starts to give the orders for his fifth corps to uh, continue the march up to Centerville. Unfortunately for Warren, that's not the head of his corps. What Sykes sees are just a few staff officers that Warren sends up ahead um, 
to see how the uh, the railroad looks. Um, so when Sykes starts to give this order for his Army Corps to move towards Centerville, this is the time in which E.P. Hill's forces strongly arrive on the British Station area. Um, so, so they're so arriving, and and uh, Sykes is leaving Warren in the lurch. We're going to find yeah. out what happens next. We're going to take another short break. Uh, come back, talk more with Bill Backus, co-author of A Want of Vigilance, the Bristow Station Campaign, October 9 to 19, 1863. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Bill Backus. He's a co-author, along with Rob Orison, of A Want of Vigilance, the Bristow Station Campaign, October 9 to 19, 1863. It's published by Savas Beatty and as part of their Emerging Civil War series. Like many of the books in this series, it includes some additional bits and pieces, uh, forwards and introductions and appendices written by other authors uh, knowledgeable about the subject. It adds to the appeal of the book. Uh, In our first two segments, we talked about the the campaign itself and ended with the uh, climactic moment, the battle itself uh, that takes place on October 14, 1863. Uh, Bill, to the extent I knew anything about this battle beforehand, I had the impression that you note in the book is a, a false one that uh, essentially you have the Union Second Corps all lined up along the Orange and Alexandria Railroad behind a railroad embankment, basically uh, in a, a sort of accidental fortress uh, that they can hide behind and shoot over and Hill's men show up and foolishly charge the entire second corps which is 
deeply fortified by this railroad embankment, and thus Hill's men have no chance. That's sort of the shorthand version. But that's not quite how it worked out, is it? No. Um, in fact, the Battle of Bristow Station is a very fluid uh, battle. Um, even though Warren decides after he escapes from Auburn to cause a halt so the entire Second Corps is concentrated in one force, during the march up the railroad, um, because of different rates of speed, the uh, the rate of march starts to string out. So you have the Second Corps split up with in about of a distance of about a mile or two. So by the time that Warren is reaching Bristow Station, along with uh, A.P. Hill's forces reaching Bristow Station, there's only two or three brigades of the Second Corps in the vicinity. Um, the rest of the Second Corps is further down the railroad, and they're not going to be actually in position until after Hill's assault is repulsed. So if, if Hill's men could get across the railroad first, uh, they, they could they'd be crossing the T, as it were, of the... Uh of the Second Corps, and they could, they could win a, a huge victory. Yes, they could have. And at the beginning of the battle, the Confederates actually uh, outnumber the, the Federal forces along the railroad. Uh, unfortunately for the Confederacy, um, the, uh, the attack just goes off the rails almost at the start. Um, E.P. Hill orders his closest division under Harry Heath, who just happened to start the Battle of Gettysburg in July, to um, attack the 5th Corps, which is north of Bristow Station. Um, There are reports of federal forces along the railroad towards the east, and so Hill gives the order to change the advance from going north to going east. And when this happens, the Confederate assault goes from three brigades to two brigades. And on top of that, the first two casualties, among the first two casualties of the battle, are the two brigade commanders of these two Confederate uh, brigades. And so within moments of the Confederate assault going off, uh, now these more or less seven or uh, nine Confederate regiments are going to be acting independently of one another. There's really no guiding hand on the Confederate side of the Battle of Bristow Station. Um, and so this allows some Confederate units to fire while they're advancing, which slows down the rate of march. Uh, some units are going up and down hilly ravines, and, um, which also slows down their, their rate of march. So by the time that the Confederates are within about 100 yards of the uh, railroad, they're now outnumbered because Warren, seeing the Confederate assault, just starts ordering these soldier, his soldiers to come up the railroad as fast as possible. They're running as fast as possible, and he's not waiting for brigades or regiments to go in. When he sees a company or a platoon up in line, he orders them in as fast as possible. So every moment that the Confederates are delayed, the Union position along the railroad grows in strength. Um, so, so there's the, the moment is lost for the Confederates. The confusion of the attack prevents them from breaking the railroad line uh, thoroughly. And now the Union is there in force. Um, the, the the result, uh, and I'm going to do some shorthand kind of head here uh, uh, so that we can, can fill things in before we're done. 
Heath's division is is pushed back. Uh, they they can't break the line. The Union line grows stronger. Uh, but both sides have more troops coming up. Uh, mm. Was there a chance, do you think, of of the rest of the Army of Northern Virginia arriving in time to uh, to complete this attack? Well, by dusk of October fourteenth, eighteen sixty three, Lee's army has been united at Bristow. So the Second Corps. Uh, safely behind the railroads, now facing the uh, full strength of Lee's army. Uh, and uh, within the few moments that are still left in daylight, uh, both uh, Confederate corps start to sh- probe the federal line. Uh, Ewell's corps is trying to go south of the railroad to try and outflank the Federals. Um, but fortunately for Warren and his soldiers, uh, dusk finally sets. And so with uh, nightfall hitting, uh, the Confederates stop whatever efforts they have uh, towards the railroad. And so they decide to wait until the morning of October 15th to restart the battle. Um, During that time period, though, uh, Warren decides to quietly pull his force from Bristow Station and continue the march towards Centerville. So when dawn breaks on October 15th, most Confederate soldiers are expecting a renewed assault along the railroad. When they start to very gingerly approach the railroad, they realize that the, the railroad's been abandoned and the Federal Army is gone. So this turns out to be a lost opportunity. Um, there are some things that make it worse. Uh, a Confederate battery of artillery is captured one point uh, you describe it in, in the book, but a moment uh, that is particularly interesting occurs uh, after the battle. Uh, most Civil War uh, readers know about uh, the end of Pickett's charge when uh, Lee uh, takes the blame, explains to the, the, the men who are retreating across uh, the field back uh, from, from Cemetery Ridge, you know, this is all my fault. Uh, you, you, you must defend our position now. But Lee takes full responsibility for that. After this battle, A.P. Hill and Lee have a conversation. And the traditional account is, is Lee essentially is once again the, the good uncle taking care of his generals. But you suggest that may not be what happened. Yes, uh, the most famous... Uh quote that comes from this Lee Hill exchange is, well, General, bury these poor men and speak no more of it, uh, which comes from a post-war account uh, from a former Lee staff member who, during the British Association campaign, is now commanding artillery battalion. Um, but there is a uh, Louisiana Tiger who records in his diary the next day uh, seeing the uh, exchange firsthand, and he remembers that Hill was very crestfallen he writes up to General Lee and says, this is my fault, General, in which Lee smacked back at uh, Hill saying, yes, this is your fault. You're commanded, you commanded a great blunder yesterday. Your line of battle was too short, too thin, and reserves were too far behind. With that uh, spurring traveler away, leaving a very uh, crestfallen A.B. Hill along the Bristow Station battlefield. So instead of the, the gentlemanly uh, Robert E. Lee saying, let us speak no more of it. Uh, in other words, don't worry about it, General. Nothing we can do now. Don't feel bad. Uh, 
Lee, Lee was pretty angry the next day. Uh, he was. That night. Uh, he, he, he did not give uh, Hill the, the sympathy that Hill might have been expecting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because Lee knew this was his last chance to really uh, get the Federals on, on equal terms. And with that bridge along the Rappahannock um, River burned, he knows that he can't operate in Northern Virginia for long. And so this campaign's now going to be a failure. Uh, Lee decides to stay in Northern Virginia for a few days, but ultimately decides to fall back towards Orange, where the campaign effectively uh, began. So that uh, brings it to an end something that might have had great results, uh, but didn't. The one reason why people don't know a lot about this is there is not a uh, a national military park uh, commemorating any of these sites at at Bristow Station or anywhere else uh, in the battle. But this book, as with many of the books in the Emerging Civil War series, provides uh, an auto tour of the whole campaign, much of it along, I think it's Route 29 in Virginia, uh, which I can I can say from experience, having driven it, uh, is much of it is in the middle of nowhere. Um, uh, you, you get out of the Manassas uh, urban sprawl fairly quickly, and then uh, after after a while, you're out, uh, and and it's pretty undeveloped still. Mm. So what what is out there, and, and what if anything has been preserved of the battle sites? Uh. Some of it's been preserved. Some of it's still uh, under sort of development. Uh, there are sections of Auburn that are preserved. Uh, unfortunately, though, Coffee Hill uh, has been developed, and so now there are uh, some homes, modern homes, on Coffee Hill. Uh, Bristow Station, uh, about a quarter of the actual battlefield uh, is preserved. That's where uh, Cook's North Carolina Brigade assaulted over. Uh, Cook's Brigade is the one that takes the most casualties at Bristow Station. Um, and that started in about 2000, 2001. Uh, the local landowners decided to sell the family farm. They sold it to a few developers. Um, so they were going to put a massive uh, residential area on that section of the battlefield. Uh, the Civil War Trust, then the Civil War Preservation Trust, uh, stepped in and worked with Prince William County uh, and the developer. So these three organizations all sat down and came up with a plan of which 130 acres of core battlefield would be preserved and open to the public uh, forever. And the uh, development could still go on, would be a high-dense uh, uh, development. So the same amount of homes would be constructed, but just on a very more dense plan, um, allowing uh, this battlefield to be preserved. Uh, since that time, the, the battlefield has expanded by uh, 10 acres, is so now the, the, the park is 140 acres. Uh, but the other sections where Kirkland's Brigade Assaults is still um, under private property, where the Federals advance on the railroad or private property, and where the battle begins at Milford with the Federal Fifth Corps um, is all developed, too. So there are some sections that are still around, but a lot of the sections, especially around Bristow Station, have been developed and lost. Uh, it's unfortunate not not every preservation story ends uh, uh, happily, at least 100% happily, but it's good to know it's a certain percentage of this has been uh, preserved. Is there any interpretation there? Yes. Um, there are walking trails at the park 
that have uh, interpretive waysides, so people can read about the 1863 battle um, quotes from the soldiers that happened to be there in 1863. Uh, there are also walking trails for the encampments that were uh, taking place at Bristol Station in 1861 and 1863-64. There's also um, an interpretive walking trail for the Battle of Kettle Run, which was a battle that took place on October, excuse me, on August 27, 1862, preceding the Second Battle of Manassas. So there is something to see, indeed considerable amounts to see, and a lot to see driving, which you can follow by getting yourself a copy of A Want of Vigilance, the Bristow Station Campaign, uh, by our guest tonight, Bill Backus and Robert Orison. Bill, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.